I'm Hugh Atchison, and this is Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot. I'm sitting in Athens, Georgia. Just turned off some Cannonball Adderley. It's Monday. Masters now over. Go Tiger. No matter what you think of the man, uh, he's an amazing golfer, and that was an amazing emotional response and finish to an amazing Masters, where I cooked all week, actually. But now I'm back, and on today's show... I visit a 24-seat restaurant in New York called Gem and sit down with its very young chef, Flynn McGarry. Flynn's 20 years old. He's been cooking for professionally for half of his life. And put that in perspective with mind math, that means he's been cooking since he was 10 years old. Flynn is the subject of a new documentary available on Hulu called Chef Flynn. And he is an amazingly interesting man. And he's not a kid and he's a professional chef and he does it with the aplomb that anyone thinks that any professional chef would he has fought against this pitted idea of him being some child outside of his realm for uh, most of his life but I think that he's just more mature than well me and most people so it's a great chat and it's a really interesting chat about chefdom in New York and the fights that we fight every day in, in the world of food. It's a good fight. If you're enjoying Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot, please rate it, write a review on your podcast app. That will help other people find the show. And this, if this is your first time listening, please subscribe and check out other episodes like Alex Stupak Explains Tacos. And last week's episode, Ruth Reichel is a Plum which is a great episode. You should listen to that one. Here's this week's conversation. Flynn McGarry makes a movie. It's a little chilly outside, but I'm in the Lower East Side of Manhattan on Forsyth Street um, at a restaurant that's very new, and it's run by Flynn McGarry, um, who is a very interesting... Everybody is always going to say young. He's, he, to me, he's just a human who... Uh, embarked on a genuine and authentic interest in food at quite a young age uh, and it was well documented in that way. Uh, Vogue, uh, and Flynn's right in front of me so I'm, I'm just talking about him like he's not here but he is here. Um, Used to it. Yeah, that's okay. And then yeah, Vogue said you were the Justin Bieber of food which made me, made me want to barf. Um, yeah, I mean, you're very cute, but you're not Canadian, man. You're not. He's not. He's Canadian, though. I I'm have Canadian. All the so we've given away Justin Bieber actually a long time ago. We keep Alex Trebek, but Justin <laughs> Bieber had to go. Um, he's like a person of the world, I feel like. Yes, I way. think, yeah. He's. I'm not sure he's of this world. <laughs> but, uh, but Flynn, uh, you were really known as growing up uh, very inclined to want to be a chef at a really young age, which I found really interesting. You know, I... Uh, I worked in a lot of kitchens when I was like 14, 15. And they're really good restaurants, but not like the ones you were in. They're very old school and French. But I mean, at 15, where were you? At 15... You were in L.A. I was in L.A. I was working in a restaurant called Alma. Okay. Um, With another very young chef. Another very young chef, which Ooh. is sort of how we... What, what was his name? Ari Tamor. Ari Tamor, yeah. Um, and I started working there when I was 14. Um, worked there for... A couple of years, um, and that was sort of. I mean, I would go do pop-ups or and go intern in other restaurants, but that was sort of like my home base for a restaurant for a while. Um, What's Ari doing now? Ari has a new restaurant in LA. That's, okay. Uh, it's called Little Prince. It's in Santa Monica now. Okay. Um, so still small, kind of very different. He's very talented, but the food you guys are doing in Alma was really good. I remember eating there once. And that that stretch of Broadway has just suddenly exploded. Yeah, and I mean that. And it's kind of before its time in yeah. a lot of way in the nascency of downtown LA. Yeah, I mean, and that's what really kind of. I went there for dinner one time with a friend who was friends with Ari, and remember, sort of, it was a time in LA where like I was really interested in these sort of like going to work at 11 Madison Park and going to work at all, all these other restaurants, and I was looking at LA as far as like I lived in LA, so I had if I wanted to work somewhere like long term I had to work somewhere in LA and I just couldn't quite find a restaurant that I thought really fit what I was interested in food wise and went to Alma and it was sort of this like really kind of thing where I just felt this energy of like a bunch of really young people in a space that 
wasn't really established, a neighborhood that wasn't super expensive and didn't really have everything on their side of like, I, I went in the summer and there was no air conditioning. And, right. But it was, there, that was sort of what was charming about it. Was it there, was like, the, there was the good fight was happening. Yeah. At Alma. Exactly. And, and I mean, I see that a lot in sort of what, we what you're doing right now. now. We'll talk about that. And, definitely. But that was sort of what attracted me to it was it was like a very, pa- just a group of very passionate people who didn't really want to like conform to what everyone wanted in the LA food scene or whatever, and even how they moved to doing a tasting menu and sort of had this sort of kind of constant drive. And that's where, I mean, I worked all the stations there and was sort of like the tournant at the end um, and just sort of like got to the place in that restaurant where I really learned how to run a station by myself, right. learned how to do ordering and learned how to expedite and all those things. Um, and at the same time as that, I was sort of also doing, like once a month, I would do a little pop-up at a different restaurant um, in LA. Um, but even, I think, sort of around 15, pulled that back a little bit just mm-hmm. because of the sort of craziness that goes into doing that. Um, and I was sort of focusing, I mean, that time, there, there's a big New York Times um, piece on me. Uh, and sort of once that came out, sort of pulled back a lot. Right. Um, I did a dinner, I, sort of right when it came out, I went to New York for the f- first time to do a dinner. Um, that did not go well. Um, sort of was the... We all have those marks in our careers. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, I'm glad it happened. I'm glad it happened. I mean, like, it didn't go well in the way of, like, no one... It wasn't a disaster. Yeah, and, like, in hindsight, it's sort of, like, it was just a bad night of service. And, like... But it was this thing where I, I mean, sort of realized in that moment of like, we, we essentially came to do, it was like two nights, 50 people a night with a 10 course menu. And I had an entire staff, of, we did it out of this like catering space. So an entire staff of catering cooks, catering waiters, who mm-hmm. notoriously, it, it's a job for them. Yeah. And that was sort of the first time that I saw like, the the reach like I was like oh I can't do this like I'm not ready for this well pop ups and temporary dinners the one thing they do is they 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 lack what we can do in leadership which is cultivating craft throughout some time yeah but when you're dropped into that scenario it's like you have what you have yeah it's like you have a few days to organize this and then but also it was a time where it was so insanely hyped up where there's all of I mean it's just like it was a in hindsight, I was like, that was an awful idea. It was a recipe for disaster, but wasn't it? But yeah. learned so much from it. And sort of, so after that, just kind of pulled back entirely. And I was like, I'm going to like not put myself, like those were the opportunities that were around. We're like yep. big dinners, whatever. And I was like, I don't want to do any of those. I good like just working. And um, that was the time also where I was sort of deciding, I was finishing, I was like almost done with high school um, that I was doing online. And I was almost done with it. So I was like, what do I want to do when I finish? Because that was the only thing really holding me in LA. Um, so I decided to just sort of work and save up money. And then, uh, when I was 16, I moved to Oslo, um, okay. to work at a restaurant, Mimo. Yep. Uh, and then went to Copenhagen to work at a restaurant, Geranium mm-hmm. and sort of spent sort of five month period just traveling around Europe yep. by myself. And then you moved to New York after that? And then I moved to New York after that. Yeah. So, so Jem is, now just under a year old. Yeah. Um, in the interim up to Jim from when you moved to New York, what were you doing? I did. So after that big pop-up, I decided the only way I would do pop-ups after were if it was in a, like a scenario where I could do everything because I was like, there's no way for a small time period, I'm going to be able to train a staff or even, hire a staff because we're doing it a couple days a week, whatever we couldn't. And retain a staff. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So I was like, I only wanted to do pop-ups that would work where it was me, one person in the front of the house and a dishwasher. Um, and so, so how many people were you seating a night in that one? We were doing 24 people a night. And you're doing all of that. How many courses? It was 12 courses. Wow. And we are now doing 24 people a night, roughly. Yeah. But you, now you have a, people, now we have a staff have people back there, have people what? back there. It's you're crazy. Boss now, um, and I mean, it was a very different setup than like what we do now. It was very focused on, I mean, it was treated a little bit more like it was always a counter. Mm-hmm. 
I served most of the dishes from the counter. From the, I mean, it was literally counter me cooking, yep. person next to me pouring yep. wine, pouring water, and we would just do everything. It was very just sort of streamlined. It, like, at that time, because I think a lot of it of like we were fitting in other people's spaces, it was very focused on like just the food. Mm -hmm. I, like, we would try to change the decor, try to change whatever to fit with what we were doing, but you can't. It wasn't the big. There's no control over it. Yeah. So yeah. it was really like, how can we just strip everything down? And it's a counter, me and one person making food. And so I moved to New York and essentially did a, I did like, it was a two different six month pop-ups throughout the, I think three years before whatever. And then in between that would do private events, whatever. Still kept traveling a bunch was something I really wanted to do was like, I would do a six month pop-up, work seven days a week essentially for it and then take two months and go to Italy or go to, we did, uh, took over a hotel restaurant in Taiwan for a few weeks. And so that was the time where I was still wanting to travel. Mm -hmm. um, being an American citizen, I can only go to Europe for certain periods. So I sort of split it up where I would go travel, come back, work really hard doing a pop-up and then learn a bunch from it. And then, um, but I mean, a lot of it was really just, I wanted to find how to cook in New York, find people in New York that trust like for investors and mm -hmm. create relationships with farmers and sort of all of these relationships that you need when you open a restaurant. I wanted them to already be somewhat cultivated before. Yeah. Setting up those relationships takes time. It's like, you don't just open the door. Yeah, exactly. And um, expect those relationships yeah. to be there. I'm trying to think of NLA around that time of Alma. What was really interesting to me? I mean, uh, I think Chris uh, Night and Market was doing yeah. really interesting things. Jessica Kozlet Squirrel, I think, was was really leading a movement. But now, I mean, geez, in the four years you've been away from five years, four and a half years or whatever, being away from L.A., the L.A. dining scene has completely changed. Yeah. I mean, it's completely metamorphosized. It's just something that's pretty amazing right now. It's really it's strong. And they're really not big into pomp and circumstance restaurants ever anymore, anymore. And they're really not into super high-end dining, which is interesting. Uh, sushi is the one super high-end yeah. dining. Yeah, that's always in, a constant. Yeah, in L.A. But I mean, and that's even kind of why I left L.A. was I love the dining scene in L.A. I mean, I think I've probably eaten at Squirrel more than right. anyone else. Yeah. And I love all the restaurants there and I love going back to it. But there were so many things that I kept getting frustrated with by doing these pop-ups and working in restaurants in the dining scene in LA where like, there's something that like, I love about sort of the element of service and the element of spending the whole night in a restaurant. Right. And those things just aren't really synonymous with LA restaurants. No, they're not. No. And like, it's, they're, they're not into the theater of dining. Exactly. Uh, the, the, the precision of fine dining. And I love that. And I, I think that's sort of where we wanted to be a sort of special case where it's like we take inspiration from New York dining that way, but also like from most of the staff here, honestly, is from Southern California. Right. And so it's like having that like in, ingrained in you where it's like everywhere you worked in LA, ate in LA, didn't have any of that sort of art of the service and all this showmanship, whatever. It was just very like... We're not going to do that. Like, we're just going to, like, serve we you We don't need food. to. Yeah. yeah. But that, that was kind of the, in a lot of ways, what moved California cuisine was, you know, Wolfgang opening up Spago and saying, everybody, no, no more tokes in the kitchen and you're all wearing baseball hats. Yeah. And sort of that sort of loosening um, that now, 30 years later, 35 years later, the idea of real, pure, beautiful service is, is now in vogue again, you know? Yeah. And, but it still hasn't ca caught on again in LA. It's funny, it's funny. So, at 20, you opened Jim, and uh, I mean, I wasn't 20 when I opened up my first restaurant. I was 26, and I opened it up with like a shoestring budget. And in scouring your Instagram, not stalking, just scouring, just scouring, it's nice, yeah, it's clean. Um, and I just noticed a lot of like some stuff of like fixing stuff and plumbing, and you know, I remember doing crazy. I mean. 
I would go in to five and ten when I first opened it and clean the bathrooms and do payroll and do the accounting from the night before and that was at nine till ten thirty and then I would go in the kitchen and start butchery and sauce work and soups and whatever we're doing. Um, and then the staff would start coming in around 12, 1230 and we would get them, I would line them up for their chores. I also did the wine program. I mean, it seems like you're in a similar boat in a small restaurant where it's like you're wearing a lot of hats. Yeah. I mean, you, and I mean that, that was what I sort of wanted to do was, I love that part of it. Well, I mean, and, and I, even with the investors, whatever I did. I know that that's not a sustainable way to do things for a long term. It's not thing. poised for growth. Let's exactly. Put it that way. But there is something to be said about like within the first year or two of the restaurant where you're defining what the restaurant is. I think there, if you look at, I mean, the trend of restaurants, especially in New York, I think mostly, and how it's becoming sort of overrun with restaurants that are opened by developers mm-hmm. and management deals and all of this stuff. And there's no, there's no singular point of view. Mm-hmm. And I designed the restaurant. I worked on all the contracts for the investment structure, the business structure went to the building department myself. I wanted to learn every single inch of it and be a part of every single inch of it because that's also just how I am personally. I don't like when there's things that I can't sort of understand. understand. Yeah. And I mean, we built the whole restaurant in three and a half months, mostly because I was the one scheduling the restaurant, like build out and all of the contractors and engineers and everything did not like how I was scheduling it because I was like, why can't everyone just work at the exact same time? Like in a kitchen where people are setting up the dining room. Because they don't like sharing extension cords. No, exactly. But it was this thing where like I thought of everything the way I think of like just running the actual restaurant. Doing it, yeah. And this sort of real deadlines where I was like, I'm going to be open by this day. Mm -hmm. And like we will be open by this day, whether or not I have to put up half these walls in the restaurant myself. Just what I ended up doing. Like and demolished the old space. Like wanted to from the day we got the space and then every day on be involved in every single element in it. Um, and I mean, obviously as we opened, we like, not even because I, I didn't want to do it, but be, like the wine program, I knew I was never going to do. Um, and like right now, uh, Daryl, who's in the other room does our wine program and, and is incredible And in it, but it took a while to find people, which I knew that have similar ways of thinking of wine and of all these things as me. And like we opened with a wine director and who had what he was doing was great for, for him, but it didn't fit with us. Yeah. Um, and I knew that that was going to evolve and change. And that's part of it. It's all fitting into the simpatico of what you want and what you're projecting. If it doesn't yeah. work, it doesn't work. It doesn't mean that that person's not good at their job. Exactly. It just means that they're not the right fit. Yeah. For it. And it's, you know, when you talk about a fit in a very small restaurant, everybody's got a fit. Yeah. Everybody's got to have their place. True. And you've got to, it's got to be a very uh, a respect of equanimity uh, or it just doesn't work. It's too yeah. small a space to have it's people literally who too small are working space. in the wrong, in different ways. Um, so back in the day you cooked through Keller's book, French laundry book. I think you were like one of three people actually cooked every single one of those <laughs> recipes. Most of us as chefs just sort of atomized from them yeah. and borrowed it. And then the really horrible chefs just completely uh, ripped off you know, like oysters and pearls and stuff like that. Um, any recipe that just didn't work? What was interesting about that book was, which I sort of recently, my mom just sent me out all my cookbooks. She's like, I don't want any of these. And started going back. Taking up like two rooms in the house. Yeah, and I started going back through them though. And I noticed like the, the pages that had the most notes or the pages that had food on them even, I would always go to the back of the book mm-hmm. for all those books. Because as all these the fine dining restaurant cookbooks that you can't cook any of those dishes. I even knew that most of these dishes, I was like, I'm cooking and I can't make these things. I went to the back and I was like, how does the French laundry make a chicken stock? And like, that's what I was. Uh, the, yeah. The, the back core recipe pages were some of the most foundational of all yeah. the menus I've ever written. And I mean, that is how I learned how to cook was, yeah. and at a higher level, 
because like I learned to make stocks with ice cubes yep. before even knowing how to make it, what a chicken stock was. Yeah. And that was the thing where I always had the obsession with the highest level of doing everything. So I was like, I even want to learn the basics through a three Michelin star restaurant. Um, and I mean, it, there were certain dishes. I remember I had a really hard time making cornets. Um, and well, I, that's uh, the French language are famous for their salmon tartare in a little, it looks like an ice cream cone of um, salmon tartare. And then, but it was the funny, I, I could never get it quite right. And then that, that was one of the times though where I was like, why isn't this happening right? It was always different. And I was like, oh, I, I don't have a convection oven that is like needed to make sure that it's all perfectly the same consistency when you pull out of the oven. So it'd be rolled nicely and not chewy on one part, yep. crunchy on the other part. Yep. And so that's where I, I also was like, like the Alinea book and all these books that were so out there, but I was using it to learn about the most basic, like what is a fluid gel and how to set these things and ratios. And um, I remember the... Have you, have you moved away from the use of a lot of those ingredients yeah. though? Because I think that's really, in the last four or five years, we saw the sort of apex of use of chemical compounds to, you know, whatever, spherify or, you know, um, to make fluid gels and things like that. Now it's really tapered off. We use it in a way that is helpful. Right, like we use but not predominant. Xanthan gum and... Xanthan gum is so weird, though. We use the tiniest bit of it when it's... Have you ever, by mistake, eaten some of it? Oh, it's the weird. It's weird. You get it on your hands. Oh, no, it's, it's weird. Yeah, you can't get it off. But like, like if it touches your lungs, I'm like, what is it doing down there? That thing, it is a mystery to me. Yeah. What even it is. Yeah. But like, it's been a thing where I think a lot of these ingredients. The only way that they're useful to us is when, for example, we want to make a sauce that has the texture of a meat sauce without without any a meat. huge amount. And of so we use a little stock. bit of Ultratex yeah. and like. Yep in very sparing ways that aren't flashy in any way or where there's no caviar beads or things like You're that. You're not meat gluing a scallop exactly. to a chicken's head. It's how can it. we use them to sort of get the cleanest flavor possible. And I think that's the best use of those skill sets and techniques is not letting them overpower food, but let them advance food that isn't, has a traditional footprint already. Yeah. Um, I mean, I learned that mostly because I, I, I went and I did a stage at Alinea. And when I was there... It was that thing where I, whatever, idolized the book in that restaurant because it's such an iconic restaurant. And then I went in that kitchen and I was like, oh, I don't actually like cooking like this. And it was such a big moment where I was just like... I don't think he likes cooking like that anymore either. No, I mean... It was He's just, changed his style. Yeah, exactly. But it was like, I saw like, they have all the equipment, they all the, the fancy stuff. And I was just like, I'm not cooking, I'm just weighing. Yeah. Like I just weighed yeah. things out all day. Yeah. And... You don't have a rotor evaporator no. back there? But I mean, there are certain, and that was like, I, what was really interesting about why I went to work at Geranium was I worked at, at MIMO. And so I was like, okay, do I go to Noma? And I like, knew some of the guys and actually hung out with them a bunch when I was in Copenhagen. And I was like, I want to go to something that's such a different style. Mm -hmm. which I, Geranium is the, like, I don't still even understand really how like we cook like that. Um, and that was one of the first like the place that I saw that was like using it in this way that was just to make all the techniques really well and not in a showy way. Like they'd yep. use them here and there and there's a lot of gels or whatever, but it was done to show the clarity of the ingredients. Yep. And, and I think that's the maturation of the whole process with all yeah. those techniques and those ingredients is, uh, is they need to, they need to progress us. They don't need to become sort of, uh, crutches. Yeah. I mean, I, but I, I also think of that in the same way of like luxury ingredients mm -hmm. where it's like, I've never understood the need of adding truffles or adding caviar to something that it's just to have it. It's, I've always thought they should be used in a way that's purposeful in the dish Yeah, where it's like the best caviar courses I've had aren't even like caviar courses. They're things where they use it for the salinity of it and the texture to make the dish something else or when truffles aren't just like, we're just going to put them on everything because they taste good. It's yeah. like a flavor yeah. component in the dish. But the, the, yeah, and those, those were the sort of hallmark crutches of, of fine dining before, but that's changed a lot in the last 20 years even um, for a number of different reasons, but mostly because those things have become cost prohibitive yeah. to put across. So, 
you know, I, I talk about the food food progress a lot and fine dining menus. And it's funny that, you know, now we can charge, you know, $18 for a carrot salad. Um, and you would have been laughed at 25 years ago yeah. in continental fine dining if you tried to do that. It just wouldn't make any sense. So, um, so the running of the restaurant day to day, you guys are open how many days a week? Five days. Five days. And is that feasible in New York, just being over for dinner? We'll see. We'll see. I think so. I mean... The funny thing about being an expensive small restaurant is you're literally just shrinking your margin down to the smallest thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, our I mean our profit margin is plus or minus one guest essentially, and I, like literally after our first year, I have defined that yep. that is our profit margin, which is such an insane thing to think about that it's that fine of a balance, and. I mean, it gives you, when you really look at it, it's like, okay, great. We don't have, like, we break even serving like 20 people a night, which is rare for most restaurants to say in New York. But it's also a thing where it's like our capacity is not significantly more than that. And I think it's where, I mean, we got really lucky with our rent situation and our sort of deal. But I think the the trickiest thing for a restaurant like ours is, is we're not we're not a restaurant you go every night and we're not trying to be a restaurant you go every night. Right. And so it's how it really is based on how do you get that one extra person to come in every night and keep refreshing itself and keep keeping people interested in coming uh, to dinner. Um, and I think it's like a really tricky balance. We've seen honestly, like trying to do more and more and more, especially now doesn't work financially because the thing that kills you in fine dining as everyone knows is labor and like it is such a hard thing to go by because like well it's the only thing you really i mean there you can control cost of goods yeah you can't control you know that your nut of what your rent and your utilities are you can control labor a little bit but if you try and control labor too much you'll never have staff retention you'll never have a well-led troop of people doing good work yeah and even also like the attend like the level of service you need to provide yeah, at this there level there is a minimum there there's a minimum yeah. and it's like and i've had so many difficult conversations with just businessmen about this where i'm like we can't on a slow night cut our front of house staff right because regardless if we're serving six people or 12 people there's the same mise en place needs to go and everything there's the same attention that needs to be given to every guest and it's a very hard thing to, to balance, especially when you're like, I think the, the reason that we kept shrinking was it was like, we, this table, like the table of six, we sort of do in a way that's like, you kind of book it when we like, you have to email, whatever. But there'd be weeks where, especially when we first opened, where on a Friday, Saturday, we, we would do 36 covers. Mm-hmm. And on like a Tuesday, Wednesday, we would do 20. And that is almost half, but I can't go to the staff. Oh, we don't need half of you for the first right. half of the week. Right. They're all going to leave. Yeah. And even now, I mean, New York just raised minimum wage, minimum salary, raised everything. And so, I mean, it's, I think I'm interested to see where the, the fine dining level of restaurants are going to go in New York because it's just, the answer is just more Yeah, I mean, it really whittles, it whittles down to what's tenable in, in this environment of a restaurant. It's like, yeah, I mean, I, but you talk to any business person and they're going to be like, I don't understand the restaurant business. <laughs> and they won't because our primary motivation in the 1% of restaurants who uh, try to attain greatness and do really good work and present great food and great hospitality is uh, we don't make much money Um, and we never will. I mean, I'm glad Kenneth Starr and people like that have figured it out, but I've never figured it out in 30 years of doing it. But I mean, you see, and it's something that I've always really, that's been great is like when as a small restaurant who you look at all these struggles and you look at all these, like, we're not going to make money and it's such a hard thing to do. And then you talk to the people at the top and they're in the same boat. And you're yes. like, this is such a nice feeling. Yeah, to know like, that we're all not making money. Yeah, it's, I remember, it's refreshing. I, yeah, I, I read the, it was like R- Rene Redzepi's last book that was like the three volume thing. Right. 
And it actually took me a really long time until the restaurant opened, but I actually read the, the journal that he did that was like a whole year. Yeah. And I was like, it's crazy that like, it was like they got number one in the world and then the next day he got a phone call from his account being like, we, as of February, won't be able to pay anyone. We'll have to close. And it's like, that's just the reality of a small, like unless we had, were in a development or whatever, had all these outside backers and all this stuff, like trying to be a, a restaurant that we're focused on having the freedom to be creative and do whatever we want creatively comes with a lot of financial instability. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, that's not going to go away in a no. area of rising rent. And it's just that, yeah, it's a, it's a day-to-day struggle. And it's like, well, I mean, you, it's a lot of weighing the positives and the negatives. Because, like, I've said this, like, I, in a different life, I definitely could have opened a very different kind of restaurant and would have been in a much better place financially for everyone involved. But would we be having the like experience that guests have and the no probably not no and we have guests who come back once a month because of that experience yeah projecting and is that right now i mean i i personally know and i think the whole staff at least on the day-to-day basis knows like that is worth more to me now as a business person than having a restaurant that puts a bunch of money in my pocket yeah i think it's most important to fight against what success means for most people because I think it's entirely different for successful chefs. And I think, you know, um, I've done well in a lot of ways, but the most successful thing I can ever be is be to me, the true definition of chef, which is I am a very good leader to the people I lead. That's it. That's enough success for me right on the tombstone. You know, all the other things that uh, will inevitably come your way are really nice accolades and things like that. They're not the definition of success. You know, yeah. a James Beard Award is not a de- defined success idea. It's a... Well, it's like because... Something to hang on a wall. Yeah, and they all go different ways. Like, you could get Michelin stars and James Beard, and if that's your goal, goal then yeah. that's great. Yeah. But you could also do that and then close a restaurant yep. the next day. Yep. Like... And so it's really, that's where I think it's all a balance of like, you have these external, especially with those things and reviews and all this stuff that are external goals that I feel like everyone sort of has because it's put on you as like, these are things to aspire to, but you can get all those and people could still not come to your restaurant. I forget who the, the, there there was a restaurant recently who got a huge award, whether it was Michelin three star or 50 best or something like that. And then announced literally the next day that they were closing down. Yeah. Um, And, and that's, that's par for the course. It happens all the time. Um, So your menu right now at gem is how many courses is it? It's right in front of me, but I'm not good at counting too. It's Four, tricky. six, eight, nine, big course, and then ten. So dessert, yeah. What what dessert is ten? So yes. Give but, me the impetus and the idea behind the menu. Like, if if a menu is a path, what's the path that you're going for? So it changes a lot with the seasons, and I mean, this is something that I why I was also fascinated with opening a restaurant in New York was like the menu right now eats very different than a menu you would eat in July. Right. Because the ingredients that we're serving now are best in different ways. It's either we're trying to showcase the sweetness and freshness, but also intensity of shellfish and fish, and trying to extract as much flavor as we can get from these sort of leftover root vegetables that have been in a cellar for a few months. So this menu, I think it actually comes out the, the way that it's served, it's 10 courses, but you actually get about 19 servings. Um, throughout a lot of these courses, they're split into a few different things. And the food is smaller and there's more of it because we want to show the intensity in it. Um, and in the summer, though, it's actually 10 courses and the food is bigger because to me, I want in the summer a bowl of really delicious tomatoes and stone fruit and stuff. And the thing that we're trying to showcase in the entirety of the menu is its freshness. Mm-hmm. And freshness is really hard to understand or like have the clean flavors and the very like crisp crispness is really hard to understand in very small portions. Right. And I've always thought this of like, you need to cook differently with that because in the summer, if I give you one single slice of tomato, you, you get it, but you need a, enough of it to sort of coat your palate and to, to really have the impact because of how nuanced and, and you're trying to pick up all the very delicate flavors in it. 
suppose in, in the winter we're, we're serving something that's just going to like hit you in the face purposely. Right. Um, but your body's different in the summer in the summer than it is in winter. I mean, I, but, and I'm totally agreeing with you. I mean, I'm much more active in the summer. I'm yeah. kind of sort of, uh, I want to play with those flavors in a bigger way. I don't just want one bite of those tomatoes. But exactly. my body's more hibernating and cold right now. Yeah. So, you know, your first course is a winter broth of roots and pines. So ex- talk through that dish. So that's something that it took me very long to figure out. Essentially, we wanted to take every root vegetable you can find at the market. Um, and I've had a lot of difficulty, not difficulty, but the personal difficulty with, with root vegetables because I didn't want it to be a menu that was just root vegetables. And I find the issue with them is when we try to extract the most amount of flavor out of them, we just get sweetness. And when you have a menu that if the bulk of our menu was focused around root vegetables, we'd have about six courses in the middle that all are just landing sweet, 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 yep. sweet, sweet. Yep. It's really hard to extract anything else from those uh, vegetables. So that's where I sort of thought of it in a very different way. I was like, we're not trying to extract the most intense flavors of it. We're trying to extract the, the sweetness in a very subtle way. So it's, uh, there's celery root, carrots, parsnips, um, sunchokes, sort of any... And the goal of that is not to just really hyper-cook them to really extract all those sugars, but more to modulate the cooking and yeah, so we, balance we, the broth? we grate all, all of the root vegetables okay. at like that minute. Yeah. So you have the fresh, just grate, just kind of bruises them a little bit. Mm-hmm. And there's some dried apples and some pine needles and a few kind of spices in there. And we steep the whole thing for 20 minutes, and that's it. Um, it's like a tisane almost. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And it's a very interesting thing. Of we, I, it took a really long time because if, if we strain it and push it, like You'll extract ladle, a lot of sugar. It's too sweet. Yeah. If we extract it for 15 minutes, it tastes like water. Yeah. And, but when you get that sort of perfect sweet spot, you get all of this, this sweetness of a tea that's very welcoming and a little bit of that like um, kind of spice from the pine almost. Um, and it's this very just sort of comforting thing that is showcasing. Is that a stringent spice under the pine? Do you think that that's going against any inherent sweetness in the broth? It's supposed Balancing to, it's, it? it's for the lingering because okay. it, it, I tried it without the pine. It was very, just like one note. It was like sweet. It's like a sweet. Is bowl. it pure pine or is it like spruce tip or? It's pure pine. Okay. Um, it's white pine. Yep. Um, and we tried with different kinds of pine and it was a very, that one was like a very long work yeah, to process. get it to be, because it is this thing where it's the only dish on the menu that has no seasoning too which was a tricky thing. There's no salt in it. There's no salt in it. It is just the vegetables and water, and that's it. And to do something that's that just simple is incredibly hard to, to have it hit right. Yeah. And, but it was it meant of this way of just to like welcome you, and you're coming in from the cold, and you want something warm and, and comforting, and I think really showcases like what the rest of the menu is, is like we're taking these ingredients and not, say, not necessarily anything like, extracting the flavor that comes out of it, but finding what we want in the ingredients to let it come out of it. Yeah. And, and, but in, in select moderation, exactly. And, and smartly curating those flavors. It's like using matsutakis. It's like people want to use a lot of them, but it's like matsutake is such a pervasive yeah. flavor that it just needs, it's like you're saying, it needs a steeping for an X amount of time that's very brief to just in, because it's such a beautiful lingering flavor, but too much is like too much pterodon or something like that. It's really off putting. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's a really interesting idea of like cuisine of moderate flavor, like of harnessing the flavor before it goes to the expectation of what people are used to when they talk about that flavor. Yeah. I mean, it's especially because it's such a long menu too, Yeah. that we can't, we need to like formulate what, flavors we're doing because it needs to flow and like that's something that i didn't realize for a while of like how important the flow of the menu is and how it's like we're, we're writing a whole menu it's not we're trying to put the 12 most delicious dishes we can do it's they need to all work together in sync and so that's why like there are root vegetable dishes that i loved that i made but they just didn't work with the menu because they you were extracting want, flavors that yeah. just but you're right it's and, like on those winter menus it's like Cabbage root, 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 yeah. root, and it it's just can be really heavy-handed. I just had to write a menu for a, uh, a dinner I have to do at uh, this amazingly beautiful architectural place called Fogo Island Inn. Have you ever heard of that place? No. It's off the co- it's off the coast, and a little tiny off of Newfoundland, 
and it is the most amazing inn owned by this woman. And but the whole emphasis of the dinner, it, they're really big into cellars uh, there and old use of food and things like that. Um, so this is all. Uh, this is the hotel. Um, wow. And it's all the so in March in Newfoundland, it's called the long hungry month. Yeah. Because you're at the tail end of the of your cellar. Sorry, and all these very make the dishes. Yeah, go ahead. Um, they all have very elaborate cellars, so it's like literally um, like cooking the remnants of things and the remnants of root vegetables and yeah. the remnants of potatoes and things like this. So, it, you know, but it's a challenge to run a menu based on these things because it's not like everybody's like, well, winter's so limiting. It's not. It just needs to push, push us in new direction yeah. on how to capture the flavors of winter that can really be presented. And so. I mean, I, I honestly feel like we, like, as a restaurant, this is our second winter. Like, we opened in winter. Yeah. And don't think we got it right the first time. Like, we focused too hard on the root vegetables and too much on that sort of traditional form that we went with throughout the whole year of start with like raw fish and whatever, move into vegetable courses, then move in, finish with like a main protein, then dessert. And with this one kind of realized that that didn't really work with, it needed to be more all over the place to, to hit the proper sort of crescendo of a menu into that final savory course. Um, which is that our menu is always sort of focused around this final feast. Right. And um, the feast right now is a seafood feast. I'm looking at it. It says grilled monkfish with XO, monkfish liver and cucumber skewer, chicken wings stuffed with fish sausage, cabbage and fish collar sandwich, and a chowan mushi with mustard. So that's all presented almost family style. So, yeah, you get chair plate, chopsticks. Yep. Um, we bring it in waves. So at first you get the monkfish and the monkfish liver and the sandwich. Um, kind of have a minute to eat that. And then we bring the chow and mushi, um, which we take all the fish bones, roast them, um, make chow and mushi with that. And then there's some roast, uh, sauteed mustard greens on top um, and finish sort of with the little, it's a chicken wing that we debone and stuff with a seafood sausage and glaze it in like a pine chicken reduction, mm -hmm. um, which is sort of the final, most savory part of that course. Um, and in the past, I mean, it's been, We've tried vegetable feasts. We've tried, we've done a lot of different meats where it, we serve the entire animal and we try to honor the whole thing and show the, essentially it's always meant to showcase the, how far you can go with an ingredient. Right. How wide ranging it is. And so this, I was like, what do I love about cooked fish? Because I don't really like cooked fish. My favorite way to eat fish it's raw is fish. raw. Because yeah. it's, it, you're showcasing the freshness, the deliciousness. And so that's why we chose fish that, were high fat or like meant to be eaten like you don't want to eat monkfish raw oh. and so what can we showcase out of that was that sort of meaty texture um so we're going to put it with sausage and dried fish and that really intense flavor and then the fattiness of uh fish collars um and how we we pre-cook them and, and shred them and, and glaze them in this really, really intense... And that's all monkfish collar on that? No, those are, those are yellowtail collars. Okay. So we, we use a few different kinds of fish. Yep. Because like in the sausage, we tried to make a sausage with monkfish. It was gross. So we used fluke for that. Um, and so it definitely it uses a few different kinds of fish. And we wanted to... Uh, I, ideally, we could use one certain kind, but monkfish collars aren't good. No. They're not good. They don't have that same flaky, delicate, fatty texture. Speaking of, so this is the sandwich. Um, so just dried cabbage leaves, then there's some roasted cabbage. Um, we make a glaze with dried shiitake mushrooms uh, that we cook down really, really intensely. And then we take those mushrooms and marinate them in a little bit of uh, dashi mm -hmm. and a little bit of vinegar. Um, and then the, the fish itself is glazed with um, uh, like really reduced mushroom farro glaze. Okay. Now... <clears throat> So you're in a interesting generational time for being a chef. Um, luckily, um, 
around the time you were probably born, chefs started learning how to cook vegetables. Because I don't think they had known how yeah. to before, except in France, and they did them one way, pretty yeah. much. And it was all al dente, whatever, asparagus, and things like that. Um, outside of Berigal and a couple of other variations. Um, but it's, it's like, so I'm, I'm looking at very beautiful crisp cabbage uh, as, as the sort of sandwich bread uh, of it. I just think we've come so far as chefs that we didn't stop, that we learned somehow to do this better, mostly when it comes to vegetables. And I still think that was a direct relation to the, the increasing cost of proteins and having to sell something. Um, but yeah, this is a, the cabbage looks awesome. I'm going yeah. to double it. Double it. So how is the collar cooked? So we grill it. Um, hole with the skin on, mm -hmm. peel the skin off, separate the individual pieces, mm -hmm. and then essentially on the pickup, we glaze it in a, the reduced that, mushroom yep. juice that's uh, infused with toasted farro, okay. um, and then just kind of reheat it very lightly. What do you think the toasted farro does to the glaze? It rounds out the glaze a little bit, because mm -hmm. otherwise it just kind of tastes like really intense mushroom, and the toasted farro gives it that um, caramelization. In the in the glaze and thickens it a little bit too, so it actually that's yeah, so just because of the starch emanating from yeah the exactly, yeah, that's great, that's awesome. Thank you. So I love this idea that you know this is the second winter menu and the first one though was a success. It wasn't a complete success to you, and that goes to sort of the the biggest pride I have in being a chef is being given a vocation where the best trait you can ever have is the want of endless learning to never fully uh, condition yourself as an expert, but rather a learner yeah. and by to, to see progress always that you never stand, stand in one place. Um, and that's to me, it's like, if you've got that at such a young age, it's like, that's the key to happiness in this industry is to just always be learning more about whatever it is. So, yeah. This is the other, this is just how we start the menu. So it's this, and then usually they get a, a little salad of citrus on the side. But so this was, we got these beautiful scallops um, from the Peconic Bay, um, and from this really crazy fisherman, and it was just this, we get them very odd times. And I've always hated, because I, I, I worked a lot in Scandinavia, where the, the scallop shells are ridged and beautiful, mm -hmm. and the scallops that you get in Maine or just like the whole ones have such ugly kind of shells when you serve it in the shell. So we took these little, the little base scallops with the most beautiful shells. And mm -hmm. so we made a, I wanted to showcase the both things I love about scallops, which is the freshness, but also like a roasted scallop and butter is so delicious. Mm -hmm. So we made a scallop butter, made a short, uh, a shortbread with the scallop butter, cooked it, cooked in it between, inside the shell in or, between yeah. two shells. So okay. it looks like the shell. Then underneath it laid, uh, there's a paste that's, scallops that are blended raw with miso and uh, koji water and some potato starch and reduced into a paste and some raw scallops, a little yuzu kosho and lime quats. So it has the brightness on the, the top and then you get the two bottom layers that are really intense scallop. What do you think about, and, and now I'm eating it, and it's amazing. Are you making your own misos and stuff? Uh, yeah, we're fermenting our own, our own koji. We yeah. have not had enough time to make, make misos yet, but. Which is always an interesting thing in chefdom. On where you draw the line on what you should be making from scratch. I'm a firm believer in almost everything, but then again, am I insulting a person who's made miso for generationally in a family that's been making it, six, it is a, 600 years. Yeah, we work with this woman who imports very specific things from Japan that I don't know if the FDA is okay with it because they right. come in like yeah. plastic bags and we won't tell them. probably brings them herself. And we got this, we only use this one, it's uh, barley miso. Mm -hmm. And I tried it, and unlike like, any miso yeah. I've ever had. Yeah. And I was like, I confidently know, like we can try and like we can, and that's, we do try. But until the point at which we can make a miso that tastes that good, we're going to keep buying that. There's a difference between, I mean, we can all make really good fresh cheese, right? Yeah. And, and, but that, that's an instantaneous act, activation yeah. and a separation and process. You know, but then people, you know, in the 90s were all making their own mozzarella and stuff like this. And I was always like, 
You know, I mean, you can buy some mozzarella. That's been, this guy's been making it for yeah. every day for his entire life, and it's transcendently good. Yeah. And the ones that I'd always make where they're making it themselves was just never the same. So, I don't know. There's an interesting line there. It's like, uh, you know, you wouldn't expect, uh, any, like, fine dining restaurants to make their own wine. Yeah. And so why do we expect? Yeah. yeah. And I think that, that comes with the whole thing where you kind of have to, there's a point at which you have to look and be like, I'm not perfect at everything. Right. Right. There are people like we, we, we do this all with like, if we want to use sourdough in something. Mm -hmm. We just visibly don't have the space or the staffing or the oven yep. to make a perfect sourdough. But we work with a bakery that has all of that. You live in New York. You can yeah. find anything. And that's where it's like, there's some things where it's like, you just are going to get a better qual and like that's where it's I think we talk about this all the time in service and food and everything of like what are you doing for yourself or for the guest yep and that's a really good point which is something that I've experienced a lot lately with a, a certain generation right now of chefs is I would just want to make sure that you are cooking for the guest yeah. as well you are cooking to apply happiness to that person exactly you are not cooking to compete with yourself to challenge yourself that can be part of it. Yeah. But if that's the overwhelming reason you're doing it, then it's not right. You need to know when to stop yourself. Yes. Because it's like, yes, initially everything comes with this yourself because mm -hmm. you're cooking it for yourself and trying it yourself. And there's been many times where I've put a dish on the menu that I love and it just doesn't, it doesn't work in the yeah. dining room and we take it off because, but, th but that needs to be an honest, mature assessment of, of what we're doing. Yeah. We're also in business. Yeah. It, hospitality. The business of cooking for yeah. myself is probably not very good because I ate a lot of really simple salads. Yeah. I mean, it's done sweet green well, but you know, it's not gonna make. <laughs> it's not gonna do anything good for you. No, and, and that's where even like with with buying ingredients, it's like, okay, are we gonna make this this bread, this or this sourdough, or whatever, that is for us to like have this sort of self thing of like we made everything, and it's not the best quality the guests can get, or are we going to say we work with this incredible company and showcase them too. showcase a relationship and is, yeah and the guest is gonna go this is incredible yeah and they're gonna eat it and it's delicious and we're not gonna serve it i mean like we think about that with fish with everything we're not gonna serve it unless it's the best so why would we make something that we're not good at? i mean also we're, we're not often equipped to do the work that they can do yeah. we don't have the space as you said but yeah. you know i've got a friend of mine who has a bakery in atlanta called root baking and chris wilkins is the baker's name and the owner of the bakery he knows more about bread than i will ever know if yeah. i started learning more about bread every day i would still never know as much as chris does chris also has a you know $75,000 mill and he buys these amazing grains from around the country mills everything himself per order per day and I just don't have those facilities. Yeah. I don't have the intellect for that. I don't the have time. the dive. And I also respect Chris's intellectual and technical skills with bread. And I want to pay homage to that yeah. and let people, more people know about it. So, you know, it's exactly the same thing as a, talking about a winemaker you adore for the wines they make and learning the narrative and the story about that. To me, I find it's more exciting for guest engagement than saying we made this sourdough ourselves. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. So there's a documentary coming out uh, called Chef Flynn, which I think is probably about you. Yes. So you want to talk about Mostly. That? Mostly. Yeah. Um, this documentarian, his name is Cameron Yates, um, essentially reached out to my family like when I was 13 or 14. Or when I was 13. I was like, I want to make a documentary about you guys. And we said no. And then, but we really liked the guy. And so we became friends with him, started going to dinner. He, when he lived in New York when we were in L.A. And about a year later, just we're sort of like, yeah, you can film a dinner. Um, and then that created sort of the relationship. He ended up filming me for six years or five years and then like a year of editing. Did he film the first pop-up in New York? He filmed the first pop-up in New York. Oh, that's in it. Oh, it going wrong. Yeah. Oh, um, that's like the point in, in, in the movie that... Um, don't want to give too much away, but you, right. see, you see everything go down and, and all of that. Um, and then it also is my, my mom's a filmmaker and made all these video videos of me when I was little and cooking. So it essentially has my life from one until 18. Um, and it, I mean, it was one of those funny things where it, it went to Sundance like three weeks before the restaurant opened. And so it was a crazy like double like restaurant opening and that happening at the exact same time. Um, and I think the most, I mean, 
I, I've seen it twice. I can't watch it any more than twice. Right. But, right. Um, I think it, to me, I really enjoyed it because it, I think there's been a lot of misread things, whatever, where people have written about things. I mean, I mean with, with anything in the world where it's like someone says something that's not true and then it gets conflated and keeps yeah. going and going and going. And this was someone who spent six years with us and showed everything the way that it actually happened. Right. Right. Um, and understands that it, it, it is also a work in progress of like, he's not showing like he didn't, he didn't show the restaurant opening for a reason. I mean, right. We're showing a period of this person's yeah. life yeah. and like, he's going to go do his thing. And like, we're not going to be intrusive into that and doing it in a showy way. It's just sort of being like, this is a story about me, but also mostly about the amount of people around me that helped make everything. happen. Yeah. 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 I mean, how was it with the pressure of like, I mean, a lot of that was just like weird media that was written about you about, you know, I mean, which happens to any prodigious person, but it just, to me, you always just seemed like this, like hyper mature kid who just had a really big thing for food and chefed them and wanted to do it since a young age. And that was it. And to me, I mean, to me, I always like shrugged, like, I don't know. I think that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I mean, it, it, is a funny thing that's how I've always ever thought about it where I was just like I've always liked cooking and if I get opportunities to do it I'm gonna do it hey, and mean, like I've that's a, great I've got a 16 year old daughter who's wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon since she was five years old and I, when she first told me I was like what is that Beatrice I mean she and she still wants to be that and it's what she'll do that's way better than that's, having your kid want to be a yeah, chef then yeah it, it, it's probably more profitable yes but, for uh, sure it's so yeah I mean I, I think you uh, whether you I, I think you dealt with all that, uh, which could have been frustrating to a lot of people and been anxiety prone to a lot of people. Like just the, the I don't know, the, it's the a, it's constancy. A, it's it's it. the uh, the constant thing of it was, I think, a lot at first. Yeah. But then the constant thing sort of becomes comforting in a weird way. Yeah. And like, you learn to sort of recess back. You know that it's always going to happen and it's always going to be there. And like, I mean, I think I've always had the thing where I was like, this is all I've ever wanted to do was have a restaurant. Yeah. And regardless of all of that stuff, I did it and like that was the thing that got me through all that too where I was just like I don't really care what's going on in an external way like I just want to continue cooking and got enough opportunities and enough people who supported me and were behind me that it could happen to to do it successfully and so I mean that and that's where I think it's it's a lot of like the amount of attention you give anything of like I gave all my attention to what I was doing not the reactions that people who had never eaten the food or never met me were having to it because that just seems like such a waste of time. You weren't like a 1980s uh, uh, young TV star who's now gone s- through some yeah. crazy I mean, addiction it, well, issue. I think you're okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's the thing where it's like you could sit all day worrying about the fact that like the world could like explode tomorrow and you could put your attention and, in that yeah. way. And yeah. it's like I've always believed it's like if you put your work and attention in a positive thing or whatever you want to put that into, you're going to do it. I could have put all my attention into that yeah, and I would have become depressed or whatever from this thing and, and been sort of stopped what I loved doing because my focus shifted to the negative of it. But my focus just always stayed on like, I want to learn the most and, and be as good of a chef as I can be and, and serve people food. And you're outwardly not done with that. No. You're enjoying it. And I mean, it's a yeah. process. It's, and like, that's why I, I keep enjoying because it it's such a long yeah. process. It is of a like, long process. It's never going to be done. done. No, you're never done with it's it. It's never going to be done. But that's the enjoyment of it. Is, yeah. Is that constant uh, learning. And, but, but, you know, I think that, uh, you know, you're in the Lower East Side. We've uh, talked about uh, Jeremiah and Fabian um, over at Wild Air and Contra. I mean, you've got great supporters and mentors who are young and have been through it too. Yeah, uh, at your disposal. Uh, as I mean, that's friends been... and guiders, and so. That, but that's the key in this industry is you need to find those people who you really and you already have who are going to uh, always support your ideas and your your decisions, but also guide you when you want the guidance and. You know, they're good backbone. Yeah. I mean, and because the, the chefdom is such a fucking weird, <laughs> egotistical bastion of shit that it's so nice to find people who are just doing it for all the right reasons. Yeah. And I, I also think there, there is something to it where it's like, especially in this sect of, of it, it's like, I understand I'm not making millions of dollars from this. Like, that's not what I want to get out of it. And right. 
And so there is something about like those days where you're slow or where they're the, the satisfaction of guests enjoying it or the, the satisfaction of, of having a great night of service, whatever, where when all that boils down, it is a community. Yeah. And like the community has been trying, like going away and going away and going away as it's become more cutthroat in this way that mm-hmm. is very sort of aggressive. I mean, one of my favorite, act- the chef from Frenchette that just mm-hmm. opened in New York, his name is Riyadh. Yeah. Um, who's been in... He used to be at Balthazar yeah, for years. forever. The Nassers, yep. He lives next door oh, yeah. to the restaurant. He used to come in when we did a coffee shop. And I think he's one of the only people in New York who truly has not a bad word to say about anyone. He's like, anyone doing something that they're passionate about is creating, is just pushing the industry to a greater good. And why would we not support that? Yep. If they're doing it passionately and for all the right reasons... And he's a badass. Yeah. And it's like, his and food is so good. Yeah. But I mean, it just like that mentality of like, regardless of who they are, where they came from, how much like work they put into what, as long as they're doing it for the right reasons and adding something good yeah. to the food scene, yeah. support it. Yeah. Because they're dealing with the same shit you're dealing how, with. How about just the bottom line being, as long as they're just good people. Yeah. Period. Let's just support good people. And put in the work. Put in the work. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah. Nobody was born with a silver spoon. So it's, uh, Yeah. Do the work and be optimistic about the industry, and but be a good member of this community. So it's not that hard. Say hi to people. Be nice to them. Yeah. It's not that hard. Be authentic. I think uh, that's what you've got in droves. So I'm not. I'm, we're not worried about you. But <laughs> welcome to call me if you need any advice. I don't Perfect. really have that much. Um, Flynn, it's been great to great to chat. Yeah, it's an awesome restaurant. Thanks and for dropping you're an in. Awesome human. Um, and we will look forward to Chef Flynn the documentary. And I will let you get ready for service. Yeah. Awesome. Cheers. This week's episode of Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot was taped by Brian Blum on location at Gem Restaurant in Lower Manhattan. It's the Lower East Side. Scott Porch produces the show and Mackenzie Mazell edited this episode. You can follow Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, please rate and review and come back Tuesdays for a new episode. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Hugh Atchison. Thanks for listening. Eat well. Be swell.